This is the Live Like Warriors podcast. I'm your host, Bryce Kenny. We've got a lot to cover today, so let's get right into it. Welcome back to the Live Like Warriors podcast. I'm really pumped about this. And I feel like I say that every time that I start off one of these episodes, but I, I get more and more excited every time I do uh, because it's just the opportunity to talk about things that really matter. Um, and like I've admitted in the past, uh, this is kind of my chance to be a little bit more unfiltered than I sometimes get to be. And I've got one of my favorite people on planet Earth with me. And uh, and so I get to introduce uh, Scott Reitenauer in just a minute. And I'm going to brag on him. I'm going to make him so uncomfortable uh, by talking all of these great things about you. And I can't even call you Scott, by the way. You're still coach. You'll always be coach to me. Uh, but for the listeners... I have written a book, uh, and it's not out. It's going to come out, I think, in the fall of 2023. But uh, half of the, it's all about foundational beliefs, things that I that you couldn't shake me on, my core beliefs, um, and and uh, what I believe that that uh, that that have shaped my life. Well, half of these warrior codes is what I call them. Uh, half of those warrior codes, all they started uh, being coached by this guy. That's to my left uh, that I'm going to bring in here in just a second. And, uh, and so I can't wait to make him so uncomfortable by bragging about him. And, uh, and, and we've, so he's been a, a coach of mine. Uh, he's been a, a mentor of mine. He's been a friend of mine. I would love to, I would love to say that we are, are friends at this point. And we uh, were, were two people that sharpen each other as well. So Scott right now, or otherwise known as for the rest of this podcast, you'll be coach. Welcome to the Live Like Warriors podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me, Bryce. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, you look it. Yeah. We're going to have to soften you up a little bit, man. I was just fine until you started saying nice things about me. Oh, just wait, you know, because here's the thing that, that I want people to understand is Wesleyan soccer. It's a high school soccer program. Um, how many state championships as a program has it, does it have now? The program has 17. Yeah, that's insane. And uh, we're going we're gonna to touch on Wesleyan soccer. Don't worry if you're not into high school sports or you don't like soccer if you're listening. Uh, this is not going to be a tutorial on even how to coach soccer. Uh, we're going to talk about things that matter. Uh, and, and really, this whole podcast will be rooted in how in the world do you figure out uh, truth? And if you know me personally, you know that I am I believe in absolute truth, not relative truth. And this a lot of this started from uh, playing soccer for this guy. But 17 state championships and ranked number one in the nation what year was that was that 16 we got as high as one in the nation we never finished there well but it was first in the nation well that's t- temporarily <laughs> uh, okay what you, you yeah you backed up to second or third there for a I couple weeks we, i think we finished at second that's what i'm saying yeah. that's that's ridiculous and you don't feel good. And, and that's the thing is I know that you, that you don't necessarily, uh, I know you take pride in that. Like you're, you're excited. It's a testament to, uh, a lot of effort and what you've built along the way. And you came in and took over this program when there were nine state championships under the banner and you've added eight in how many years was that? It was Oh, Oh three was when you came, I came in in Oh three. So is it, Oh man, is next year going to be your 20th season? This year was my 20th season. This one was, yeah. Oh my gosh. Why didn't we throw a big giant party? We did. Wait, when <laughs> did you not get the memo on that? Oh my God. Oh, the homecoming thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I felt like that they were, I mean, yes, I was, I was there in attendance, but, uh, that's right. I was there. <laughs> 
I, th- I, I thought I hugged you, man. Yeah, yeah sure. did. Yeah, I prayed over you and everything, man. We <laughs> laid hands on you. I made a joke after there was like 150 people trying to lay hands on you and like give you hugs. That's right. Yeah, and I was like, 20 more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay, all right. Yeah, I, yeah. okay. That perfect. was homecoming. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was. it was integrated with several other activities. So yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, all the alumni soccer players that were there were like, why is there anything going on except for just celebrating uh, Scott right now or so? Uh, but I remember the first time I met you, by the way. So you came in, it was a, it was before, uh, see, it was 2002. No, or it was 2003. So it was the it was May before you took over the for the first season. Yeah. Um, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a freshman and absolutely just miserable at life. And I'm, I'm becoming, you know, I'm going into my sophomore season and we had the, the program had, you know, this historic, um, uh, just, just, it was a powerhouse program for years under David Sanford. And well, we were a long way away from it being a powerhouse at that point. In my freshman year, it was going down the tubes. I was looking to transfer, um, the coach that was there during my freshman season was an absolute train wreck, um, who will remain nameless because he's a good guy at heart. But I had no interest in playing for him or or even staying at Wesleyan Academy. Um, and this guy shows up with David Sanford. So the fact that you showed up there with the legend, David Sanford, it was like, okay, why? If David Sanford showed up at all and he's here to introduce this guy that's going to be our coach, I better listen. And I, I do you remember what you said that first meeting? We were all in the bleachers by the stadium. Do you remember that? Or by the field? I remember the meeting. I, I don't know specifically what I said. And I, I do remember uh, – being with Dave. Yeah. Oh, well, I remember. So you're in luck. <laughs> Remind me. You said one thing. You said, you know, David, David Sanford was like pumping you up and talking about how great you are and how all this stuff. You looked at all of us who ha- who were only there because there was an announcement. If you have interest in playing Wesleyan soccer in the fall, you know, meet out on the bleachers after school. You said, I've talked to the administration at this school and they have agreed that I only have to take seven of you. <laughs> To have a season, <laughs> you better come in fit. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> and you decided you wanted to play? No, I left the next day. <laughs> I went to Kentucky, man. I was I okay. was you know doing racing stuff, and I was like, but I remember, and I bet you, I bet you, I could pull up my email right now, and uh, and show you emails with Jason Watts, my best buddy in the world. And I, we were emailing back and forth because we, we didn't even have phones really back then. So it's not like we were texting each other. That was our text, I guess, at that point. We were emailing back and forth about how much of a we, – we did – this was this is not – you know, probably shouldn't say this very publicly, but we were comparing you to, oh, man, this guy is Hitler. <laughs> that we, he is a, he's a Nazi, which is horrible to admit. But that is – that's just the facts of the story. And uh, we were like, this guy is – he is intense. Uh, Jason had gone out, uh, done some summer workouts with you, and basically was – we were all terrified of you, basically. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I still am kind of terrified of you sometimes. You There's know? no need to be. No. <laughs> no, Bryce, I can't imagine Wesleyan soccer without you. And I, I think you knew what was at stake. Mm. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you stayed and, and didn't leave. Yeah. Well, me too. I can't imagine my life if I had left Wesleyan. Um, I wouldn't have met McKenzie. My, well, I met McKenzie. I knew McKenzie since the first grade, uh, but we, we wouldn't have gotten together by the end of high school because I would have been at a different school. Um, and so um, I, I wouldn't have learned the things that I learned, especially my, my sophomore year was a big turning point. Uh, my junior year is when I was like, this is either, you know, 
Like I, I realized in my junior year, I got to figure out who I want to be as a human being. Um, and then my senior year was the most empowering thing um, that could have happened to someone coming through high school in, in numerous different ways uh, that actually we might get into in just a second. But uh, but I was very thankful for that. I will say that and this is why I'm very I'm definitely loyal to this man sitting by me is because uh, and you're, you are the hardest person to say no to, by the way, for me. Do you know that? <laughs> You've said that a couple times and I I don't understand. H- have you taken advantage of that a few times? Absolutely or? not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> well, come on. Well, you are. Uh, you're the hardest man to say no to, be, but it's because of how much you've uh, done for me and through the years. And um, uh, I, I've told people this, though, anytime this has come up for some reason. I can't, I was one of those kids coming up through middle school and things like that where I felt like all the teachers and anyone that was ever kind of an authority figure for me was always trying to change me, hmm. Right. So they were always trying to uh, reduce me. They were trying to control me. They were trying, I don't know what the right word is. Um, they're they're trying to subdue me. Mm. Uh, and and uh, I, that was why middle school was awful for me. Because, and by the way, you know who was my middle school principal? David, David Sanford. Sanford. Yeah, your hero. Yeah. Um, and I love David Sanford too. So I, I'm, we're going to have to send him this podcast just so he knows that we're talking such good good things about him. Um, uh, but I always teased him too because I was like, man, he was an amazing Amazing soccer coach, but a terrible principal. That's what I would say to his really? face. Yeah, which it's coming from me, who was his student, who I'm sure he was an amazing principal. But anyway, but everyone was trying to change me. Um, I, you were the first person in my life that said, you know what? There's a lot of weaknesses there with this guy, but there's also a lot of strengths. And it was you were the first person outside of my mom, right? Who's still to this day the biggest cheerleader for me. Um, but you were the first person in my life to ever find the strengths and then, and then understand how to apply those strengths to life. And it, we just, we just so happened to be playing soccer yeah. while you applied that. Do you, do you think that you, uh, do you see that you see the good things in most players that come through the program? Do you think that that's something that like you have an ability to do, or do you have to consciously look at a Bryce Kenny as a sophomore who was, who was kind of an idiot and not like I had so many rough edges. I was very difficult as a sophomore, um, just a, as a person. Did you see the good things, or do you think you just naturally start to get drawn to that? That's a really good question. I I think I see players as sometimes needing irrigation instead of like as fires that need to be put out. Mm. Um, I think maybe I'm a bit of a Shakespearean character in that my greatest strength is also my greatest weakness. Because uh, my desire to see someone um, come to fruition, you know, like to actually become the person that they're called to become, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's, you know, keeping a ball out of the back of the net or uh, picking up sweaty pennies after practice and doing the things that shape and form character. I, I, I want that person to actually become great, mm-hmm. truly great. Um, and I think I that's the hook for me uh, to come alongside people and try to help them um actualize the abilities that they have mm. um which is you know but do you think you nor- do you think you like naturally see the strengths or do you have to look for them I, again like i i think it, it, it's a strength but it's also a weakness mm. like i will sometimes hold on too long to guys you know like 
and I don't like this phrase, you know, don't don't burden the right people with the wrong people, because hmm. in one sense, we're all the wrong people. Hmm. You know, uh, there's one who is good. Um, but in another sense, like that's a that's a fair mantra when you're dealing with a group. Um, you know, you don't want to hold on to somebody who's, you know, selfish or incompetent or, um, you know, dogmatically stubborn and they're not going to, you know, buy in or own the processes or the core values that you're trying to implement with the group and they're mm-hmm. going to do things their own way. Uh, so there's a time to, you know, let a person like that go. Um, I think I see the good in people uh, and I try to, you know, nurture uh, and, and, and shepherd that good, uh, to fruition. Yeah. I, I, I'm not really answering your question. No, you are. I, I, I think that that's, that's what I see in people. Mm-hmm. Um, again, which is, I suppose that's a strength, um, but it, it's also a weakness. Well, it's, it's incredibly empowering. And I think that's what I'm trying to get across is that, uh, I think that's why I'm, I'm so incredibly loyal to you is because without that, right, without somebody seeing the good in me, and, and not even just, you know, not trying to fix my weaknesses and things like that, but, but, uh, and not just saying, Hey, Bryce, you're really good. You're a really good leader. I've been told that since I'm, I was in third grade. Oh, Bryce, you're a natural leader. Well, that's why a lot of people were always all on my case in middle school was because they were like, well, you're leading them the wrong way or you're leading them in the wrong direction or, um, and they would make me feel so guilty about what I was or wasn't doing. It's like, man, I'm a sixth grader. I'm not, I don't have anything figured out. I'm yeah. trying to get a girlfriend, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I think that understands, so it's not just someone seeing my strengths for my strengths. I think it was also though, being in an environment in an arena, which was Wesleyan soccer for me to be able to apply them. Right. So for you to be able to look at me and say, and, and see the, my abilities, um, and I remember one of the things that you, you told me that, uh, I think it was going into my senior year. Um, and my word for that year beyond leadership and stuff like, cause you always put me in a position where like, Hey Bryce, I want you to one, one year you wanted me to be the enforcer. And I'm like, <laughs> that came out in a Google interview, by the way, I interviewed with Google, uh, back. I don't remember how long ago this was five, six years ago, but actually it was before monster jam. And, and I was either going to go my corporate route and, and then maybe possibly go work at Google and they're on the recruitment side or go, go, uh, like with this monster jam side. And here I am. Uh, but anyway, that's a whole nother story for another podcast. But the lady asked me, what was your role back in athletics? And instead of like the smart answer of, well, I was the captain. Like I was, I wore the armband my senior year. I was always in some sort of captaincy. Even my junior year, I, I was always involved in leading the team instead of like the right answer. That word came back into my head, and I said that in the interview. I was the enforcer, the enforcer, which was terrible. So you were the one that made me make the guys. You know, you wanted me to be the guy, the the guy that like controlled the two lines. You wanted our two lines walking out on the field to be crisp. You know, you gave the example of Mike. I don't know if it was Mike Tomlin with the Steelers, but you know, putting the silverware in the silver container. Yeah, it was Tomlin. Tomlin. Yeah, um, you used to get, and I was like, I can be that because what it really was, and and I think this is gold. It wasn't even just, it wasn't about patting me on the back saying, good boy, Bryce, you're strong. You don't have any weakness. It wasn't about that. It was about giving me a role to play that was appropriate for my abilities. And that was appropriate for my strengths. And so it made me I be, and what it is, it changed my identity and who I was. I became proud of that, of who that you saw me to be. And then I said, I want more of that. I want to be that guy. 
And then the actions, the day-to-day stuff, and what it took to become that, to live up to that identity that I was now wanting to own, uh, that it, it made the actions easier. I worked harder on the field. I behaved off the field. I was the enforcer, right? I made sure our silverware got back in the silverware container. Um, uh, but it was because the empowerment of that was helping to shape my identity through what you saw in me. And I think that you've got an uncanny ability. Then uh, the older I get, I'm only 34, uh, but the, the older I get, I, I see fewer and fewer people that actually care enough to do that. Hmm. So kudos to you, man. So that's why you'll always be coach. <laughs> Thanks, Bryce. Listen, I had a <laughs> I had a baseball coach uh, back in the day, like elementary, middle school, and uh, his name was Coach Jack. Okay. Okay. And his son was also named Jack, and so Jack Junior. Jack Junior was terrible at baseball. All right. Jack would always play Jack Junior at first base. I was the catcher, so it's not like he was playing in front of me or anything like that. But Jack Jr., the only position he should have been on was the bench. <laughs> but, why, don't you, why don't you say what you really think? Yeah, well, this is me unfiltered. I get to say it because no one knows Jack. I don't think anyone knows Jack from the Cardinals <laughs> from the Cardinals team back in High Point Little League uh, back in 1998. Um, but uh, if I see Jack, if I see Coach Jack in the grocery store today, you know what I call him? I don't know. Jack. <laughs> He's Jack. He's not coach. Yeah. So uh, that's why I can't call you Scott because, uh, you know, the respect is immense. Um, so anyway, all right. Are you okay if we, you know, move off the love sesh here? Yeah. I'm, I, I, I would just say coaching is teaching, you know, and a, a, a good coach or a good teacher will take an individual where he or she is at and – help that person um, become more. Hmm. And I think within a team context, uh, you've, you've got to constantly identify strengths and accentuate those, you know, tease those to the surface. And the idea of giving people roles, um, you know, corporately we are a body hmm. as a team. So one person's going to be the hand, another person's going to be the mouth, another person's going to be the eyes, somebody's going to be a foot, um, and then the Someone, body. Someone's going to be the middle finger. <laughs> yeah. Who, who's, going to be, who's going to be that? Which which were you? Were you I, were, I was never the middle. Were you I, the mouth or the middle finger? I don't know what I was. I felt like the fist sometimes. You were the fist. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and in, in many ways, uh, the glue, I think. Mm. Um, or the, you know, the metaphor breaks down here, but the prod um, you know, to kind of keep us, keep us moving. I, I, you know, again, I think good coaching is just assembling a group and building consensus. And anytime you're invested in that project, you're going to have people that try to block the fulfillment of the group, Mm -hmm. sometimes intentionally because they have big egos and sometimes unintentionally, but you got blockers, you got driftwood, you know, like people just kind of go with the flow. And if you got a great culture and it's moving in the right direction, Driftwood moves along with it. And then you've got people who buy into what you're doing. Um, when they kind of get a sense that this might help them become a better person or achieve some goals they have, then they buy in. And then you got people that own it. Hmm. And you you were someone that owned what we did. And I, I just recognized the value in that you know, after you decided to stay yeah. with us, um, you owned what we did and your investment 
and what we were able to accomplish as a group was unparalleled. So basically what you're saying is I, out of 19 seasons, I was your favorite player. Is that what, is that what we're trying to put on record? No comment. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can believe that it was Bo Yokely, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love Bo. On, we're we're going to send this to Bo too. We love you, Bo. We're going to send this to Bo too. Hey, he's, you know, what's really cool though. It is fun watching the fact that we've got a lot of people that have come through the program. It has become a brotherhood. And again, this isn't even a Wesleyan soccer podcast and, and things, but I think that, I think that what you're saying and talking about and what, what was so big for me, like it shaped who I want to be as a dad. Right, I want Keegan. He's five. I want I want to see the good things in Keegan to call out the good things in Keegan, and to show and find the ways to give him a role yeah. that's appropriate, you know, and and to to try to uh, to not turn him into who I want him to be, but to naturally see those things and um, and so I, that's what I think that it, it is. I think it's growing increasingly difficult to do that um, and, and just to. You know, not that long ago, I'll be very transparent with this. I, the reason why I did not coach this fall, this is the first fall, not that I didn't coach, but I told coach no. This was the first time I was like, coach, no, right? So here I was, I was like, I, I, how many years have we gotten to coach? And you've always drawn me into the program and you've been very gracious to me and probably filled in a lot of phone calls from parents and stuff like that that, you know, weren't fans of Coach Bryce or something because I was just, too intense. Just one. Just one, yeah. It was a doozy, though. Um, but uh, but you've always drawn me. I, I told you no, and the reason was is because I, I admitted to you. I said, I don't know that I believe in these kids, and that's bothering me. Like, I, like I was self-aware enough to know what was going on. I was ashamed of how, to art, how I was articulating it because I was going, I don't know that they get it. Sure. Can I catch them to, can I teach them to catch a soccer ball better as goalkeepers? Yeah. But do I believe that they have the intrinsic wiring that would relate, that would be useful for me to take my time to go out there and to invest into them with them? You know, you can't push them. That's what I told you. I was like, I don't know that you can push them and I don't know how to coach any other way. So it's really not an indictment. I mean, I said that in a way that makes it sound like it was such an indictment against them. I don't believe in them. It's not that I didn't see their strengths and I didn't see, and I was only seeing all their weaknesses. It was like, I only know how to coach pretty much one way, you know, and, and it's, and it's not the loud boisterous way either, even though it comes out that way. It's, I don't know how to coach without pushing. Like you almost have to, you've got to earn their respect. You have to earn a 17 year old's respect now for about four or five weeks. It feels like, and then they start to get it. And then they start to adapt. It's, it was no longer, oh, you're my coach. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it this way. I'll catch the ball that way. Yep, no problem. It, you know, I, I won't, it, it wasn't about talking back. I, I, always, I wanted the discussion with, with players. It was, never a, it was never the army with me yeah. or militaristic. Um, but I admitted that to you. I was like, I don't know how a 17-year-old is wired anymore because I can't push them. If I push them, they complain and they go cry to mom. And then you get a phone call from mom. And I think you did only get one phone call uh, just in my career of coaching. So, um, uh, so like I said, even if one of these goalkeepers happened, happened to stumble on this and listen to this, um, you know, it's not an indictment on them. It was me saying, how are kids wired? So someone might be listening to this and they might have a a teenage kid, right? Um, And you've got kids, uh, one at Pepperdine. My gosh, amazing. 
Um, and then one still at Wesleyan. Is he a junior? He's going into senior year. He's a junior. I'll be a senior next year. All right. Yeah. That's and my daughter's a sophomore in at Pepperdine. Pepperdine. Yeah. That's also terrifying. Um, but anyway, you, you, you're obviously a dad. How are, how is this generation? How are they wired? How would you give someone advice on how to work or how to deal with, not even just as a coach, but as a parent, as a teacher, because uh, you're also a teacher, which we'll get in that in here in just a little bit too. But how in the world can you influence or impact or, or affect this generation that you see every single day in the classroom? I mean, people are people, you know, and children are children and teenagers are teenagers in one sense. And then in another sense, um, the times have changed. I mean, we live in a postmodern, maybe a post-postmodern society that's very visual, um, very individualistic um and that kind of bumps up against narcissistic i Mm -hmm. think in a lot of ways um but people are people and when you challenge young people with meaning and purpose and you know do you want to be built for yourself or do you want to be built for other people Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like the choice is obvious uh, and only the fool uh chooses selfishness um, so I, I think, you know, just getting young people to recognize the choice that's in front of them and then helping them to choose wisely um, is maybe maybe a bit of a skill, which yeah. I think you actually possess, mm. uh, even though you, you speak of your tenure in a self-deprecating way, Bryce. <laughs> I mean, I saw you have massive, massive impact on the young man in our program. And I think I, I would challenge you to come up with a single player who you interacted with who won't as a function of your mentorship or your coaching or your teaching your instruction um be a better dad or you know a better husband or a better friend as a result of your interaction with him yeah i mean can you think of one i mean i i I, it would it would maybe and maybe to your point maybe it's the expectation of what you want to impart Right. Not even just as a coach, but if you say, all right, I want to invest into somebody. Right. I want to, I see a need. I want to help bring them up. Um, I think, I think a lot of times is when you, you, maybe, maybe I'll give this analogy. You're walking with somebody that's 17 years old down a road and there's two, you know, it's two words, two roads, you know, diverged in the woods kind of a thing. And you know, you actually happen to know if you go down this road, it's there's wolves, <laughs> there's barbed wire, there's razor blades all over the road. You know, um, uh, you don't want to go left. You want to go right. Um, and it does not matter what you say that it's, it's not even just, oh, OK, thanks. Like, thanks for telling me that or thanks for, oh, because because you've been on this path before. You're not wanting to control them. Right. You're not wanting them to be a different human being. Yeah. You're trying to say to your point, you're trying to say, if you go down this path, it is lonely because it is narcissistic. It is built for yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm, and you know, a lot of players, let's say that I've seen it is it's, they can, they can come up with the right answers, but at the end of the day, they're just trying to give enough of an answer to where they look like a team player, but ultimately they're just trying to get what's theirs. And, and that could be for a, that could be for, again, that, that, that could be for a 35 year old employee that someone listening to this is working with right now. Um, and, and our society is building people that are not built for other people. Right. And so how, how do you start to see then 
not only just the people that that become built for others, but like you're you're not just you're not battling the individual, you're battling society. I think you're battling, you know, the culture of a high school nowadays. Um, do you, cause I don't, I, it's been a long time since I've met a 17 year old kid that was actually wanting to become built for other people. Yeah. I mean, does anybody really in their own carnality initially, uh, want to be built for other people? I no. mean, are, are people intrinsically good by nature or mm. are we, you know, built for survival and, you know, are we, are we prone to seek our own interests first? Mm. Um, but we also have this capacity to reason, uh, which, you know, is self-evident in mature adults, but, you know, seemingly grows and, and evolves and, and becomes larger in children over time. And I mean, some tools that I've used, I mean, the power of retrospective vision hmm. with even teenage boys. Hey, guys, survey the last 12 months of your life. Contemplate the moments where you chose lust instead of love, Hmm. uh, where you chose uh, selfishness instead of service, uh, where you chose lethargy or apathy instead of industriousness and concern and care. Uh, Just, you know, don't don't take my word for it, uh, but look back on the last 12 months of your life. Like, which which do you feel more proud of? Like, which gives you a more abundant sense of meaning, Hmm. you know? the the responsibility <laughs> that you chose to uh, take upon yourself or you know the the excuses that that you chose to absolve yourself from responsibility so i i think one-on-one gets it done and you know you said you know we're battling culture but like culture is comprised of individuals mm-hmm. you know like it, it, it's the individuals that make up the society and I think that's part of our challenge as men who have gone before, right? Like we're older, uh, we want to impart something to the next generation, and it is right, it is true, it's beautiful, it's good um, to help young men become built for other people. I mean, you have a really tasty vehicle in your garage out there. <laughs> I mean, it's what, 52 years old? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, you put water in that gasoline tank, I mean it's not going to run, you know, it, it, it won't run properly. You put gasoline in that car engine and, you know, you're going to have some fun, yeah. right? Well, people are no different. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I, I tell the guys uh, almost every year is, you know, do, do you want to look out for yourself and your own interests or do you want to look out for the interests of your brothers on the team? Mm. And a thoughtful person looks at that initially and they might be a bit reluctant to say, I'm going to look out for the interests of my brothers. But when you're in a room of 30 people, we typically have big rosters. Yeah. Like when, when you're in a room full of 30 people and you say, let me, before you make your decision, let me explain it to you this way. You know, if you choose to look out for you, you're going to have one person looking out for you. Mm. You know, if, if all of us choose to look out for everybody else except for ourselves, and we can look, look out for ourselves too, but I'm going to look out for you and you and you and you and you and all the men on this team. Now you got in a room of 30, you got 29 guys looking out for you. And, you know, if you love your neighbor as yourself, <laughs> then you love yourself and your neighbor. Now you got 30 guys mm-hmm. looking out for you. I mean, which would you choose? Uh, one of the things I, I tell the, the students that I teach at the school and the soccer players as well is be skeptical like question authority and that that kind of you know grabs their attention and they're like well you know we're supposed to just kind of do what we're told to do well 
a blind allegiance to a malevolent authority is never any good. Hmm. You, know, you don't want that. I mean, if we're talking about a loving mother, mother, a loving father, um, a pastor that would you know lay his life down for you, or a genuine, genuinely altruistic friend, like, yeah, I mean, don't question that person's authority. Um, but a, a lot of kids these days have, you know, they've been through some pretty challenging things, and um, when they come to you, they're not they're not necessarily ready to trust um, with with an open heart. Uh, and so I think just being honest with them right up front and saying you're allowed to question mm. what I say. Um, but you know, if I, if my reasons are better than yours for why we're doing what we're doing, like I expect you to be malleable and come along and participate in this project with us. And I've found that, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old young men, um, and, and, and the women that I teach in the school, uh, they, they tend to be pretty reasonable. Do you think they, they want that? Like, is that the way to push? is to reason like do they want to reason or do they want just the the blind leader if you will that's, or, a, that's a really good question because i i think i think reason is a tool in the toolkit mm-hmm. um that that you know you and i have and have polished um but it's 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 a gift that we can give to the next generation so that they are thoughtful um and you know in one sense like you know learning logical syllogisms and informal fallacies and things of this nature are, you know, very sterile and academic. And in another sense, like it's absolutely essential for, for, for young people to have those tools so that so they can think clearly. But I don't think primarily teenagers are thinkers first. Mm. Uh, I think, um, you know, we're, we're lovers first. I mean, we're, we're created to love each other. And I, I would argue to be loved by God and to love God back. And I think, you know, reason can be a tool that allows you to do that. But I, I, I think most, most young people that you run into these days, um, they want to be loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and have, have we really fallen so far that we can't, um, you know, love them in a ordinary way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And talking about reasoning with a 17 year old, for instance, like you get to do this a lot in the classroom. And actually, I think that you enjoy this as much, if not more than coaching is teaching this class, but I would call it an ethics class. Uh, But, uh, but it was called understanding the times back when I was in school. Is it still called understanding the times? It is. UTT. That's right. Didn't it change names for a second or no? No. Oh, okay. All right. Um, But, uh, but it's, it's, I can't imagine a better person talking through these topics because you're really challenging and you kind of play recently. I've been uh, trying to use a different word than devil's advocate. That sounds so horrible. Yeah. Um, It's usually Socratic rhetorical is the style that I employ. Socratic rhetorical. Right. So you you ask a lot of questions and some of which are rhetorical, but some of which are genuine. And you know, then the students are constantly trying to figure out which is which. And so they, and I use humor as a classroom management strategy instead of, detentions. Yeah. Well, yeah. uh it works cuz it stretches everyone's thinking and basically the what what, is, what if you said there was one goal for an individual sitting in a classroom for UTT, what would it be? No, I believe what you believe. Yeah. Amen, right? Yeah. So I think that um I and, think and 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 know why other people believe what they believe. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Not just taking the blind uh the the I will call it blind faith, but I, some people hear the word faith and they think you're talking about something spiritual. It's not even just spiritual it's i can have faith that i'm gonna you know drive from here to walmart safely 
Yeah, faith is a really slippery word. I mean, on the one hand, faith is to be sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, faith is to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Mm. Um, and those are seemingly mutually exclusive, but they're not. Yeah. And fa- faith is a pretty slippery word. But. So what do you enjoy about the class? I mean, what, what type of stuff do you get into and how far will you push um, a student in understanding what they believe? I mean, and why they believe it. Essentially, I mean, you, you took the class, so you know, yeah. uh, but for the benefit of the, the broader audience, yes. the class looked at six worldviews, biblical Christianity, Islam, secularism, Marxism, Leninism, postmodernism, and new spirituality are the, the terms that are used for the six worldviews. And we study them across 10 disciplines. Do you remember what they were? The 10 disciplines? Yeah. Uh, like theology, philosophy, ethics, all that stuff? This guy's big time. Come on now. Yeah, it's theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, and history. Mm. Now, I'm going to ask you to fill in the matrix for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the, ma- the matrix is essentially a grid, you know, that, that has terminology that articulates each of the worldviews, thoughts, um, beliefs, core values across those disciplines. Yeah. So... I mean, essentially what, what you're asking the tabula rasa or the blank slate that is the student when they enter, and I, I'm not necessarily believing that, you know, they're all blank slates, but yeah. um, you ask them to, to be able to understand why they believe what they believe, and they're allowed to, you know, pick from the cornucopia or the buffet of worldviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just need to be able, this is the part that's non-negotiable. I mean, you need to be able to explain why you believe what you believe in a, in a given context, discipline, or area. Mm-hmm. Do you thought do you through the years? Because now, if it's your nineteenth season, it's been your nineteenth year teaching that, right? Yeah. Um, in nineteen years, are they getting 20, more? Twenty. Twenty. <laughs> oh, that's right. I just yeah, I said that earlier. I can't get it. I just like I don't want to believe that's been twenty years. I think yeah, that's what it is. It's been twenty. I'm ready to celebrate again. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So in twenty years, are they asking more questions? or Are they getting more quiet? Are they? Are they? Or do do you have more differing? Because I, I remember, like back even when I took it, I felt like there was a lot of people that thought they knew, so they that what they believed, so they did not, like they 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 really did not dissect it very much. There was always, you know, a a, a small group of people that even back when I took your class, three or four people that would say that would kind of raise their hand and admit and say, well, I've got a question about this, right? I've got an issue with this part of biblical Christianity around the theology side or something, but not twenty. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess what I'm saying is, are you seeing more students being willing to talk about the stuff they're struggling with, understanding and believing that they've just kind of accepted, or do you see fewer kind of I, wanting to I, engage? It's a good question. I mean, I I would say that the general population is actually more engaged mm. now, um, and and I would say probably more confused now, um, and I I find that both encouraging and challenging mm-hmm. in what way? Well, I think some of the traps that young people face these days um, are different than they were when you and I were younger and I'm a bit older than you. So like when I was younger, uh, you know, most young people these days can access more information in a 24 hour window than I would have been able to access in the first 18 years of my life, Hmm. which is crazy. Yeah. You know, in terms of, you know, access to the internet um, and all the good and all the bad 
that 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 provides. Um, so that's that's a challenge, right? And um, you know, I would say today's culture is significantly influenced by postmodernism, mm-hmm. and I think that the the relativistic approach to ethics and even the language that that's used in the broader culture um you know it, it presents some challenges for young people yeah i mean i, I don't i don't know how, how deeply you want me to go into that i just I, think it's a really challenging time for a young person yeah uh you know 16 17 18 years old to to be growing up in in america and 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 on the in the same breath you know we live in a in a beautiful country um you know she has her problems but but she's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to actually take a class like this. Can you imagine? I mean, there's not many, there's not many countries that would allow the freedom of thought. We have, let alone freedom of discussion. I, I, I'll, I'll tell speech. you what, we, we have an immense amount of academic freedom. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not too much that we can't, uh, dive into or discuss, mm. um, in, 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 in the classroom. And I, you know, I'm thankful to the administration at the school for giving us, um, the privilege to engage the world of ideas yeah. in, in a way that's relevant for, for teenagers. Yeah. Well, and I think that, uh, when, when I think about, uh, well, let me put it this way. When I get the most frustrated with people that in talking about what they believe, and it's not even just that there's the relative truth and well, that's okay if you believe that or I, the thing that bothers me the most are when people base beliefs on other, on their experience with other people, meaning, I, you know, I don't disagree with a lot of liberal theology or, or um, the way that liberals approach government, right? Because of a liberal I met yesterday, it's because of what liberals believe, right? I'm more, I'm much more conservative in my approach to government because I just want to be left alone. I don't want the government to be big. I want it to be small, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot of discussions in my world in what I would call a very secular environment all the time. And I love it by the way, I, 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 if I would have become a pastor or something, I'd have gotten thrown out of seven churches by now. Um, <laughs> I know it for a fact and McKenzie agrees. Uh, I just couldn't have done it. But the, the discussions I have that I have an issue with are when people base their opinion of something around the Bible or Jesus because of a bad experience with a church or another Christian. It's like, wait, you know, I, I want to take it back to the source. Do I agree or disagree on the actual claims that this guy named Jesus was making saying that he was Lord, right? I want to, yeah. I want to address that. I think it's, um, and this isn't even, we might go down this path, but, um, this isn't even meant to take a, 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 a turn towards talking, um, about spiritual stuff, but I guarantee you we're about to, <laughs> Because you and I can't sit down and not talk about that stuff, and I love that. Um, but I think that it is so amazing to me that people uh, base their belief on on another human being rather than going back and, and deciding on the source of that thing. And it could be aliens, right? I don't, I, I don't have an opinion. My opinion on aliens, on whether they exist. This is a real conversation I have with other Monster Jam drivers, by the way. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think I really do. I think in the next five or six years, if if someone so they're they're going to have to have an opinion on whether aliens are real or not. Um, and that is so ridiculous to even say into a microphone and admit, but it's just hilarious to me. And these other, these other drivers I've had this discussion with um, believe in aliens are like, they are real. 
they found, you know, bacteria on Mars. So therefore life exists on other planets and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, let's slow down for a second. But anyway, um, I don't base my opinions on aliens on the guy that claimed to be abducted. Right. I I look at what, what evidence there is for aliens, what, you know, it's also based, it goes back to what I believe as a Christian that, you know, we were created. So I'm kind of going, okay, if I, if I understand, if I believe that the, that the world started through evolution, then maybe could evolution start on another planet? I guess that would fit with that worldview. But all of this saying, the only time I get aggravated at people is not when they believe something different than me, but when the belief is not based on something that's solid, it's just opinion, it's wishy It's It's not only is the truth relative, but the thing that they've based it upon is also relative, meaning it's not something that's that's attached to that thing that they're basing the belief on. Yeah. Um, and so when you're, when you're seeing, and not even students, like we could even start saying, okay, this isn't even just a 17 year old sitting in a classroom, but I think that you get to engage in these conversations all the time. And the good thing is, is if a 16 year old is willing to reason more than a 35 year old is, and that's the truth. Sometimes people get to be in their thirties and they're like, okay, this is who I am. Yeah. Right. And they're on railroad tracks at that point. So I think 16-year-olds are more of the blank slates for that very reason. But when you're going through this, how are, how do you not impart your own opinion on those subjects? Because I don't, I get the sense that going through a UTT class, they're basing it on the source. When you're breaking down the philosophy of Islam, you're going back and saying, well, let's go look at what Muhammad claimed. Uh, let's go look at the Quran, right? Let's go look at what that does instead of, you know, not, it's not just you know, Scott Reitenauer's opinion 101. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, primary source material is essential. Um, I am a subjective objectivist. So, like, I interpret the reality that is there through my own lens. And I think both subjectivism and objectivism are important. Like, I mean, if you dismiss the actual world or <laughs> the, the reality that is self-evident, um, which some pretty radical postmodernists do, um, you know, then I think you, you descend into, into lunacy. Um, but you know, is my interpretation of life my own? Yes. And if I say I can fly, I may or may not be able to fly. Um, but not, not all, not all subjectivist perspectives are equally viable in the world out there as mm-hmm. it were. Um, cause I can't fly. And if I go up to the top of you know, a four story building and say, Bryce, I can, I can fly. That's my personal opinion. I really believe I can. And you try to get me to not jump and I do, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Right. Um, Because there is an objective world to which the subject relates. But wouldn't our world come in and say, well, technically if he believes he was flying, he was flying when he was falling. For right. And, and, and that's where, isn't that technically flying? Well, and, you know, and, yeah. Well, like, <laughs> or Bryce, doesn't he fly because he straps into a monster truck and, you know, jumps well, you, 20 you feet do, in the air. You do fly for you actually do six fly. or seven seconds. You know, you were the Mohawk warrior. Yeah. And you fly sometimes, but, yeah, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I say, I say all of that to say, um, you know, I, I believe that there's epistemological tools that we have access to. What's that, that word mean? Uh, it, and it, your, your epistemology is how you know what you know. I've never heard that word in my life. <laughs> so a, a, a tool would be like what you use to study, observe, understand the world mm. uh, and, and to know it. Um, and I believe that truth, beauty, and goodness are actually real things mm-hmm. uh, that we can um, access. Mm. 
through our own subjectivity, <laughs> right? Um, so an epistemological tool would be reason, uh, math, mm. uh, experience, science. Um, the, the theistic worldviews believe in revelation. So for, for Muslims, uh, it's, you know, the Quran, uh, the Sunnah, uh, the Hadith. Uh, for Christians, it's the Bible. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, epistemological tools are mm. like the, the, the modalities for exploring the world and figuring out the way it works. Yeah. Um, so when I'm in the classroom with the students, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to simply tell them what to think. I want to give them tools so that they can learn how to think and, um, you know, hopefully reach their own informed conclusions. I'm a Christian. I'm biased. The presence of bias does not preclude the attainment of truth. If I, if I were Jewish and, you know, you asked me if I thought the Holocaust happened and I said yes, would the fact that I'm Jewish mean that the Holocaust didn't happen? Mm. No. Mm. I mean, everybody's biased. Everybody is biased. Mm. There's no way around it. But in spite of our bias, we can still arrive at truth. We can arrive at beauty. And we can arrive at goodness. Mm. Or they're opposites. Yeah. And I can tell you what I want to find. I want to find things that are true. I want to find things that are good. And I want to find things that are beautiful in spite of myself. Well, that's, that's the thing that uh, you messed me up on uh, in the story I told earlier about admitting, like, you know, I don't know. That, what do you, how do you reason with a 17-year-old? Now, that was your response to me a couple months ago. You said, I, I, I said, well, how do you treat a 17-year-old now? And you said, Bryce, I speak truth. And I, you just every day, if that's what it takes, you speak truth. You speak truth over and over and over because they might they might believe it today. And then tomorrow they're shaken. You know, and so like it's just my job to speak truth into those people. Um, what do you think is the biggest in our society, culture, world? What is what is the greatest um, thing coming against absolute truth? What's causing it to be more and more relative? This whole the the secular humanistic viewpoint and the postmodern era that we're living in where oh well you know you the only the only people the only opinion you can't have is to be a christian now right it seems like yeah. uh, that's accepted everything else you can be but what's the greatest threat against having any absolute truth opinion i think death of god theology is significant um you know friedrich nietzsche the madman great little parable i commend it to your listeners um and nietzsche just brilliantly articulates um what a what a world that's unchained from its sun mm. might look like you know what festivals of atonement shall we invent what sacred games uh you know whither are we moving now whether is the earth moving forward backward upward downward as through an infinite abyss like when you when you unchain the earth from the sun like what happens mm. i mean just float through nothing it's cold and dark um and i think when you remove uh, from the human experience, the God who is there, uh, I think things become necessarily relative. Uh, and, you know, there there are some pretty robust philosophical arguments on, you know, both sides of the, of the theistic divide uh, that, well, we, I, 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 won't, I won't go into those. I'll just answer your question. You know, where, where, where does um, a lot of the relativism in, in culture come from? I mean, I, I think it, it comes from um, 
you know, ultimately death of God theology. And it's one thing to, you know, disagree as to who or what God is or whether God exists, but it's another thing to presume or assume uh, that definitionally there is no God. Mm. Uh, And I think, you know, when you kick God out of the room, what's the universal to which you attach your particulars? Um, I mean, the character and nature of God, uh, at least the Judeo-Christian God, uh, serves as a pretty solid basis for ethics. Um, You know, Solzhenitsyn and, 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 and Dostoevsky and some of the great Russian writers get it right when they say, you know, and I, I think Nietzsche would have echoed this, although, you know, Dostoevsky was theistic and Nietzsche's atheistic, you know, without God, anything's permissible. Mm. So I think when you when you kick God out of the room, um, you at least, you know, e- even if there is no God, uh, which that's up for debate, you know, I'm, I'm not going to assume that I'm right. I believe that I am. Uh, but if you kick God out of a culture, uh, and Nietzsche got this right, like you, you basically undermine um, the foundation for the the civil institutions upon which much of society was founded yeah you know the family the church the state um you know like it or lump it i mean they're they're kind of grounded in you know the judeo-christian worldview yeah historically speaking most of what western civilization is yeah do you ever do you know the name stuart uh Knettle? Does that sound right? K N E C H T L E. I think it is. It's not Stewart. ringing a bell. Um, I've been I, my TikTok algorithm is throwing this guy all over my page, and um, but he's I mean he's got to be sixty five, seventy years, maybe not seventy, but he's got to be sixty, going on a college campus and engaging these people in conversations, right? Yeah, and yeah. all and he is a Christian, and he's he's hearing what they're saying, um, and it's every I mean from every possible viewpoint. That, that you know, and, and a lot of the difficult ones, whether it's it's uh, uh, someone that believes in Islam or uh, or a lot of you know, he'll get a lot of secular humanists, he'll get a lot of postmodernism uh, theology and, and stuff thrown at him. And the way that he navigates through that stuff is amazing. If someone's looking for really good, like healthy debates that are done in in such a way that's pulling a twenty two year old's brain into a conversation with the wisdom of a six year old who truly yeah. does show love to this guy and is not the you know, he's not the sidewalk guy with the microphone and a big giant speaker just trying to get everyone aggravated, which yeah. which nothing even against those guys. But uh, but Stu Knettle, I think it's what, how you spell it, K-N-E-C-H-T-L-E. Um, uh, but I would highly recommend uh, people jump into that stuff because it's, it's really, really super engaging. You, you see a lot of these people, uh, high schoolers that come up, they have opinions. They, most of them came up through church. And most of them had some opinion on God before they showed up in your classroom. Yeah. I am surprised. Okay. So I graduated from Wesleyan and some of the ones that were the strongest, what I would say the strongest Christians now, 15 years later, are some of the most devout atheists. Now, it doesn't mean that when I say that it might be 5% of the people that came through. I would, I would imagine that Wesleyan's statistics, because they have UTT, I know I'm a benefactor of going through UTT because it did teach me how to think. It didn't teach me what Scott Reitenauer thought, right? Because yeah, yeah. I still couldn't, you, you did such, you always did such a great job of like 
we always tried to get your opinion on stuff. You would never give it to us. But I can't listen to a song on the radio without breaking down what is the message of the song. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, I love it. Right, I can't watch a movie though, and I'm I can I can spot it drives Mackenzie nuts because Mackenzie can just sit there and watch. It. But now she went through UTT too. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, but I can't listen to any of that stuff without going what. And there's always a message behind it. Always, there's always something that that person is trying to push, and most of the time it's not something that I agree with. Uh, but the stat, the last statistic I heard are that evangelical Christians, by the time they graduate from college, uh, it's like 80% fall away from their faith. Mm. Is that the last, is that a, do you have any sort of stat on that? Not not just from Wesleyan, but I feel like I would have pulled that from a UTT book or something like that. 80% falling away from their, I said, I said faith in the way that I hate using the word faith because, you know, their, their belief in God, whether they become agnostic, which is just a belief in God, but we can't really know you know, that who that God is, it's not a relational God, it's not the God of the Bible, or if they fall into atheism, um, would you say 80% is a pretty fair number for, for just the world, like for America, or is that high? I wouldn't want to put a number on it. Really? Yeah, I, I, I don't feel like I'm informed, um, and my, my commentary would be anecdotal, mm. <laughs> you know, simply based on my personal experience. Uh, and, and I also, I, I have a, who, who does, who does God love? You know, like who does Jesus love? I mean, he loves people. Um, and, and, and people either run to him or they don't. Um, some people actively run away from him, mm-hmm. uh, but people run to him or, 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 or they don't. And I, I would say, you know, his, his love for them doesn't change. So I, I, I'm just shy of like putting a number on, you know, the percentage of people who, you know, walked away from their faith. I mean, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know, like, how real was it before? Kind of yeah. Thing? I mean, yeah. It, it begs a number of questions. Like, you know, if someone walks away from their faith, um, did they have faith initially mm-hmm. or, you know, was it just the environment that inculcated kind of like a, you know, a, a false faith in them? Yeah. Um, you know, does someone, you know, you get into the whole predestination, you know, Armenian theology, free will stuff where like, you know, does God choose us or do we choose him? Um, you know, but I mean, t- to your point, Bryce, I, I think, you know, there are, there are students at at Wesleyan, for example, who would say, "Yeah, I'm a Christian." You know, they they would call themselves a Christian, uh, and you know, 15 years from now, they they might not. And you've you've seen that firsthand. Yeah, I, I would just say that that's that's sad. And I mean, maybe maybe the solution to that is that we actually live out what we say we believe. Um, I've talked to a number of atheists. I'm friend friends with a bunch of atheists and, and I have conversations with them all the time. And one of the things that they rightly point out is, you know, if more Christians actually lived out what they say they believe, uh, be a heck of an argument, mm-hmm. It'd be a quite compelling, um, worldview or perspective that they'd really have, have to grapple with. I, I think that's, you know, somewhat fallacious and that like, you know, you, you don't answer to me. I'm a Christian. You don't, if you're an atheist, you don't answer to me. Mm. Ultimately you answer to Jesus and you know, you can find all kinds of flaws in me and you, cause you know, you happen to be a Christian as well. Um, but I challenge you to find flaws in Christ. Yeah. Uh, cause I, 
I don't see any. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to what I'm saying earlier, which is if, if people are basing their opinions on my life, you know, if they were basing their belief in Jesus, let's say, for example, on my life, like that's unfair, but that's not just Christianity. That's on anything, you know, basing your belief on something that is unstable, let's say, is not any, that's not scientific, right? I mean, people want to argue science, you know, they, they go back to the actual element that they're, that they're trying to debate. Um, you know, it's, it's the same thing with Islam. Like I made a decision on Islam, you know, not because people, you know, that, that, uh, claim to be, uh, Muslims flew, uh, planes into the towers, right. On nine 11, it's because I looked at the Quran. I looked at what this Muhammad guy claimed and there was nothing to back up to, in my opinion, what he was claiming. Right. Um, so I, I, I didn't believe that Muhammad was his prophet. Um, uh, so when I, when I look at the elements of all of this, I don't want people to base, uh, most of the people that I find fall away from their truths, let's say, which I do believe in absolute truth. Uh, but the people that fall away seem to base that falling away or change of their belief set based on something that has nothing to do with what they were trying to believe or disbelieve uh, to begin with. That's when I, that's what I have a problem with. Yeah. Um, and I meet more and more people the older I get, but, but, the idea that we would not try to understand and make a decision on these things, like Jesus did not claim to be just a prophet, right? Um, Jesus claimed to be Lord, right? So the Josh McDowell element of it, he is either a liar, right? He knew that he wasn't God's son, but he told everybody and he got this big, you know, gathering and everything. um, uh, And he was a liar that he wasn't the son of God and he knew it, or he was a lunatic. The guy actually thought, that he was the son of God. And yet, uh, you know, he, he walked, but he actually wasn't the son of God, right? That would be, you know, Looney Tunes for sure. Um, uh, or he was the only other, the third choice is that he was actually Lord, that he was the son of God. And when someone goes down that route, if they're really trying to figure that out, they are required to uh, make a decision on Lord. It was he the, the, was he Lord? Was he a liar or was he a lunatic? Um, you know, I've got my opinion about that with Muhammad, right? Who claims is what he does with Islam. I've got that opinion on Karl Marx, right? So yeah. it's not just the Marxist that stands up at some rally giving me his spiel yeah. about why Marxist is the way to go. It's not him. It's going back to Karl Marx, in my opinion, right? Um, and having to go through that. I just cannot understand either why I, the more people I meet, the older I get, the less people are wanting the mental exercise. Yeah, well, it takes a lot of work uh, to read the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Quran, the Communist Manifesto, the Secularist Manifestos. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of work to digest Chesterton or Lewis or Nietzsche or Solzhenitsyn or Dostoevsky or, I mean, Hume, Kant. Like, th- this is a lot of a lot of work. Um, and so, I mean, there, there may be an element of, I just don't, you know, people generally don't have a desire to, to make those sorts of movements in the same breath. Like my grandmother was an incredible human being and I, I don't think she read the journal of philosophy and I don't, yeah. I don't think she ever <laughs> read Nietzsche or, or Kant. And I, I don't think she could tell us what Kant's categorical imperative is, you know, but, but she was a wonderful human being that you know, adopted my mom and, you know, was faithful to her husband and lived a pretty good life. And, um, 
Yeah, I, one of the, one of the things that we do in the class is we ask a lot of questions. We read a lot of primary source stuff, and um, you got to be able to support why you believe what you believe. And I don't I don't teach understanding the times in the following way. I'm a Christian. You're not. Let me explain to you where you're wrong. Mm. Like you're a two year old. Mm. Like I approach it in the following way. I'm a Christian. I might be wrong, but I don't think that I am. And I think there's good evidence for the hope that's in me in Christ Jesus. Mm. And I'm trying to find a point of connection with you. If you're a pantheist and you hug trees, I'll be like, oh, so you believe that there's a God. And, and, and yeah, God's in the trees. And, and, you know, I'm God and the trees are God. Well, we just found a point of agreement. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're a Muslim and you believe there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, that's awesome, man, because I am a, I am a, I'm a theist, a space bar theist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're a long ways away from finding agreement on the character and nature of God, um, but we're at least finding points of, of, of commonality. You know, if you're an atheist, um, you know, do you believe humans matter? And most atheists do. Well, so do I, mm-hmm. you know, so we find agreement there, human solidarity. So we're looking for, you know, points of agreement on these matters. But but you bring up a, a good point when you when you reference McDowell, and he's actually borrowing from C.S. Lewis. Mm. That's C.S. Lewis's trilemma, Lord, liar, lunatic. And I, I would maybe add a fourth category, like sincerely mistaken, you know, because I, I think it's theoretically possible that Jesus was sincerely mistaken, Um but, you know, was, was he God? He, he said he was. I mean, you, you can't read the the Gospels as many times as I have and come away from them saying Jesus didn't say he was God. The, the only people that I hear tossing that around are kind of atheists that, that are looking for reasons to stay uh, in their atheistic faith. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, Jesus did say that he was actually God. Um so, so then he's either, you know, sincerely mistaken or he's a liar. He's not a good guy. He's mm-hmm. a liar. He's crazy. You know, he, he would be on, on par with someone walking around saying that they were a poached egg. Yeah. You know, I think saying I'm God is probably more absurd than that. So anyway, like how are we arriving where we're arriving? I mean, we're, empl- we're employing an epistemological tool. You know, we're looking critically at the life of Christ, the primary source of the Gospels, and we're asking, you know, a lot of questions about who he was and the life that he lived. Yeah. And I and I think, you know, it's not just the Bible that you employ as you try to figure out who, who Jesus is, but it's certainly the most relevant book on his life. Mm-hmm. Well, when I look at this, it's, and I think the reason why this is so important, because maybe someone's listening and they're not a Christian, all right? This whole thing isn't even to... You know, we're not going to lead an altar call here um, at the end of this podcast. <laughs> the point of all of this is understanding why you believe what you believe. And and also, though, it goes back to people want to do well, right? People want to do good. I think I think people want that. It most doesn't pe- mean that most people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they want change, right? They want to improve their lives. They want. But what they're doing is they this is what they've bought into is chasing happiness. Oh, yeah. And that's the worst because not only is that not based on any truth, but what happens is they do lose their identity in that process. I was in that part, part right? I think when everyone looks at, uh, when, when you're going through trauma, 
when you've gone through something in life that's that you didn't deserve to go through or when there's or when you're just in a dead end job that you hate right and you're wanting to put the train on a different track the worst advice that people could ever take is well do what makes you happy yeah it doesn't mean unhappiness is the goal right, right? but but happiness certainly isn't the goal because it comes back to my who I am as a person it comes back to my identity and what we believe, I, I, I believe that what I believe drives my actions and what and my actions ultimately will drive my life. And so when people want change, and that's what people are always trying to do, they're trying to create change, they're trying to create a different life, um, and they're trying to do put the train on a different set of railroad tracks. But if that's the only thing they're doing, then they're, they're not going past a little bit of pain that change always brings because it doesn't make you happy when you're lifting weights trying to lose weight it doesn't make you happy and if it took you 200 trips to the gym before you lost the first five pounds you're not going to be happy on those first 200 trips you're just not right so you 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 know you're not going to go and uh simply have a goal to go and lose weight and get on a diet just to lose a certain number and hit a specific goal unless your identity is now you're wanting that identity to be based in i want to be healthier Right. I want to be proud of my body when I put my jeans on in the morning or whatever it might be. But 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 the identity is way more important because I think that when people are willing to do what we're saying, which is identify truth, like have to sit there and have that mental exercise of what do I really believe and what am I basing that belief on? And that's everything. Right. That's not just around anything spiritual, right? Okay, great. You're, you're somehow miraculously still listening to this podcast and, and any talk about God, Christianity, Islam, anything like that is just makes you really super uncomfortable. Great. You're still listening to this. Go back to the things that are simple and the things that you actually believe to be true about life. And then go back and think, what am I basing that belief on? If it is just because that belief makes me happy, that's not enough. And chances are it, it you're, you've never rooted happiness in any of your belief to begin with, because I'm, you know, be, being a Christian doesn't always bring me happiness. Like sometimes it brings me pain because it's lonely, especially when I'm out on the, in my world that I'm in. I mean, like I said, I'm in a very secular environment and I love my environment that I am. I'm in, but it also can be very painful when it is, it feels very lonely because I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, doing this, this life right now with, 20 Christians where we all go to, you know, our events on the weekends and we have a Bible study on Thursday nights and stuff like that. That's just not what we're doing. It's okay. I would still much rather honestly be in the secular environment having these discussions with people, but I just want people because that's where, that's my story. It's not because I have it all figured out. Um, it's because I want this. I want to understand truth. I don't think truth is hiding on in some alleyway out there right? That's just like, oh man, no one can find me, right? I think, I think truth is begging to be found. I think truth stands there with the strobe light on, right? I mean, it's, it's wanting people to find it. It's self-evident. Yeah. But, but people choose that for this false sense of, uh, not even security, but false sense of happiness that they're going to go and do what makes them happy. That's keeping them um, from from actually getting past that next step of figuring out what real truth is and what is actually true in our society. I think it's getting harder day by day. I got a quote for you. Come on. Paul Hewson, a.k.a. Bono. Oof. This may be from a song lyric. It's kicking around in my head. Yeah. Maybe from an interview. 
Paul. I apologize if I'm getting this wrong. Paul. I didn't even know his name was Paul. Bono, huh? Yeah. Paul. Happiness is a warm gun. And I, I think the, the one of the points there is, like, there are many things that can make the sociopath happy, mm. you know? Like, if that's our metric for human existence or, you know, what one ought to do to get oneself out of a rut, we got a problem. Yeah. Um, I, I think Victor Frankl's happiness does not install itself by itself might be more appropriate. And it probably has a broader reach for your audience. Um, but, you know, Frankl survived Auschwitz and Dachau. And, you know, he rightly acknowledged that every human being is going to deal with the tragic triad of human existence, pain, guilt, death. Mm. So who has not encountered those <laughs> live long enough? Eventually you'll encounter all three. So how does one, you know, find meaning that would probably be a more appropriate question mm. given the, the depravity and the chaos that we see in the world. And, you know, he, Frankel goes on to say, uh, you can find meaning in, uh, unavoidable suffering. You can find meaning once, once your suffering finds a meaning, it's no longer despair. It's, it's suffering. Uh, you can find meaning in a work to do that only you can do or a person to love that only you can love. And I, I have found Frankel to be richly informative um, when engaging a culture or society or individuals within a society who, you know, just like you said, Bryce, want to want to find happiness. The utilitarian ethic, let's find the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people, mm. do, it doesn't work. It's pragmatism. Utilitarian, utilitarianism and pragmatism, I think, are rooted in, in a, in many ways, in a, in a godless theology. But I, I, I find meaning in loving people that only I can love. It's, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I do what I do. I mean, I, I genuinely want to help other people in spite of the mess that I am. You know, I want, I want to help other people. Um, so find somebody to love that only you can love. Uh, find a work to do that only you can do. Um, you know, Frankel could could kind of flip people's paradigms because um, he was also he also developed logotherapy, uh, which suggests that most disorders are neogenic. Uh, they're disorders of the mind. Uh, they're not necessarily behavioral. Uh, they're existential. So he'd have people in crisis, um, you know, come and speak with him, and he could help them. Uh, find or reorder, reorder, reorder their perspective uh, to find meaning in one of those three areas, and they'd they'd walk away uh, a healthier individual. Mm -hmm. Man's uh, search for meaning. Man's search for meaning. Yeah, by, book, by yeah. Victor Frankl. It's it's a fantastic book, pr probably in my top ten. Yeah, uh, and I would. And it's I would a short little it. read. It really yeah, is. I mean, yeah. the first half is his experience through. Auschwitz That's and the right. Holocaust. And the second half is logotherapy. It's logotherapy. Right? And I, you know, I'm, I'm engaged in the helping relationship in a number of different contexts. I've counseled people. I've been counseled myself. Um, I teach, I coach, uh, and I lean on Frankel mm -hmm. all the time. So I, I, yeah, I would strongly recommend Man's Search for Meaning. One of my favorite stories he tells is of a, an elderly man who comes into his office and he's suicidal. Uh, he's just lost his wife and you know, typically, not typically, but often uh, you'll see elderly people when they lose a loved one, uh, they kind of give up. 
and this this can have significant physiological consequences because of the you know the neogenic um, perspective <laughs> that that they now bring to life like I mean they've they've done life with with someone for 50 60 years and now that person's gone and everything's changed um, so this elderly man comes in and he's he's suicidal and he says you know I've, I've lost my wife I think they were married close to 60 years or maybe a little over 60 years and I just don't see any point to going on and Frankel asks him well what would have happened if you had died first and he said oh for my wife that would have been unbearable she's a better person than me hmm. you know she would have felt my loss even more than I feel hers and Frankel says you see by you outliving her you've spared her this suffering hmm. the man stood up shook his hand left his office you know like he's not happy yeah he's not happy uh but his suffering cease his despair he's in despair he's suicidal his despair ceases to be despair and it, it becomes suffering uh when it finds a meaning and and that meaning was you know his wife didn't have to experience the pain that he was experiencing in her loss mm. and i think that that's that's pretty significant. I, yeah, I would strongly recommend Man's Search for Meaning yeah. by Viktor Frankl. Yeah, root your meaning in, 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 uh, in people that always say, like, what's the meaning to life? And they struggle with trying to find their meaning. It goes back to their identity, right? I think it goes back to who they are instead of what, what they do. And, mm-hmm. and too many people are trying to find what to do differently instead of slowing down to say, who am I? Like, what do I believe? Um, and, and that book is huge. <laughs> it made me a better driver. By the way, the man search for me, yeah. Victor Frankel. Yep, because when he talks about his, uh, hyperintention, unpack that for us. Hyperintention, hyperintention. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and that's what I was struggling with big time because I gotta get this. I gotta get this. Yeah. I gotta I, you hyperintend. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and you want something so bad to the point where it actually will create anxiety yep. and keep you from that. And the the example that he gave that that stuck with me was when you uh, when you're trying to fall asleep. Yeah. Right. And you just like, okay, I've got to fall asleep. I have got, okay. I'm, I've got a big meeting 8 a.m. Okay. And then all of a sudden it's 1 a.m. And you're like, oh, if I just fall asleep right now, six hours, I can get yeah. six hours. You try to, and then before you know it, like the alarm's going off and you got three hours of sleep because you wanted it so bad. The anxiety actually kept you awake. Yeah. Um, and he, and he has a great technique in there and I'll save it. Cause if you're listening to this, you need to go pick up that book if you haven't. And if if you, if you, you have, have read to say it, you, you could tell them it's paradoxical intention. Well, for, listen to you. <laughs> let let, let the it? audience know. Okay, next podcast that you're on with me, uh, we're gonna have all the listeners. When you see Scott Rightnauer's name on there, it'll be Coach Rightnauer, but just bring a dictionary with you. <laughs> uh, Epistemology. I don't. Did I get that right? Epistemology. And paradoxical. Paradoxical intention. Intention. Just, when yeah. you intend yeah. the opposite. Right. So like you've got that big exam or you've got that big race the next day yep. and you have to go to sleep. Well, try to stay awake. Yeah. And, and then I what happens is you'll you'll fall asleep. And I don't recommend yeah. that whilst driving. Yes. Yes. Well, but for driving, though, to your point, it was it was well, for you. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, driving out there. Well, and it was and it was less about like, you know, oh, I want to land this backflip or I want to do this cool jump. It was, you know, I've got to win. I've got to do this. I've got to increase my points. I've got to do you know, I've got to have better results. Right. And then it became something where it created so much anxiety. It was changing the way I was driving and I wasn't driving very well. And so then again, just, just what he's talking through and what you're saying through that technique of it, it changed the way I drove and it made me more relaxed. And then I went out there and actually did better. You, you know, you know where else he, he discusses this, where, uh, achieving orgasm. Does he? <laughs> he does. Does actually. he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, 
Um, oh, that's right. Ch- I children, how do I yeah, forget that? Children cover your ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forget that part. The full female orgasm. <laughs> yeah, in his that- interview, uh, I think through, on the BBC, maybe. Um, but yeah, <laughs> must have missed that one. I'm a- yeah, this is not PG thirteen anymore. <laughs> yeah, he he actually talks about like people who you know fixate on achieving like a full orgasm mm-hmm. typically more with women than with men um but they they're, they're fixated on achieving it and it's only when they um kind of surrender and let go that idea and they focus on their partner um and and like i you know i i, I love this person that i'm with mm-hmm. and they give themselves completely in love to that partner and then the, it installs itself by itself. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he says happiness will install itself by itself when you're no longer fixating on it. And mm. then in his thick uh, Austrian or Viennese accent, uh, he, he says, you know, the orgasm will install itself yeah. by itself when she is no longer, you know, while she f- focuses on it, she is doomed to fragility. <laughs> uh, uh, is it fragility? I can't, I can't remember what, what, he, what he says. Um, but yeah. It, it will install itself by itself when you're no longer fixated on it. Yeah. Happiness is a byproduct. Frigidity. Yeah. Fr- yeah. Frigidity, not fragility. <laughs> yeah. Happiness is a byproduct. Yeah. It yeah. should be, right? And uh, when the journey, the-, the journey is a destination. The destination yeah. is a journey on the road to amazing. Yeah. 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 Sorry. No, no, no. No. That's much better said. <laughs> you're going to be my translator. <laughs> Have you seen that with Key Michael Key? No. When he goes out and he does, he's like a, I think he calls it the urban translator when, uh, uh, Jordan Peele is like saying something nice and calm. And then he comes in there and like, you know, over the top, just starts yelling about what Jordan Peele is trying to say. And Keegan Michael <laughs> Key's his urban. I, have, I did see Snoop Dogg, uh, commentate on national geographic. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did see that. He's got a wine out too, man. Snoop Dogg's everywhere. Snoop is everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. So let's put a nice little bow on this before we let everybody go. Cause, uh, live like warriors podcast. Apparently, uh, we're also saving marriages through helping with better <laughs> orgasms. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that's terrific. So, but, uh, let's put a nice little bow on this. We started talking about becoming built for others. When someone is so focused on the wrong thing, I think it's really hard to become built for anything other than yourself. The advantage that a Christian, a real Christian that has a relationship with Jesus actually has, because I would be, I would be a tyrant. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about becoming a monster yeah, and then learning how to control it. Yeah. The, the only reason I've learned how to control, uh, who I am built and the wiring inside of me is because I give an account for what I do and who I am as a human being and what I want to become to something bigger than myself, which I believe to be God and the call of Jesus to follow him and to turn the other cheek and things like that. Yeah. Um, otherwise yeah, yeah. I would have become a monster and a, an absolute tyrant. Now I would have been good. Like I would have been, you know, try, maybe trying to become a CEO or something. Or I don't know. Right. I'd have been, I'd have been always running a team or running being in some sort of leadership. Uh, but the advantage that somebody uh, that is wanting to understand purpose and meaning and going and actually understand the good side of them, taking the, the strengths that they have, finding a role to, to have. We talked about the, at the very beginning with me, and I learned that on the soccer field being coached by you. Uh, the advantage of a Christian is that they do give an account for those things. So what would you say 
would help somebody, whether they're a Christian or not, let's say. I'll give that disclaimer, I guess. Um, what's the what's the best path to actually becoming built for other people? Invest in a transcendent cause that's bigger than you. I mean, Jesus said he's put on the hot seat by a number of scribes and Pharisees, and they effectively ask him, you know, summarize all the law and the prophets. I follow Jesus, <laughs> you know. So I, you know, if you know, we could quote Jordan Peterson, we could quote Jocko, we could quote Nancy Piercy, or you know, Oprah. I thought um, you were about to say Pelosi. I was like, probably not. We, we could, probably not this time I'm, on this podcast. <laughs> I, I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote or paraphrase Jesus yeah. because um, he's the one whom I want to be most like, mm-hmm. and find myself. <sighs> you know, failing, uh, to become. And yet if Christianity is true, um, when God looks at me, he sees his son. So I, I I'm going to, I'm going to quote Jesus on this or paraphrase Jesus. Uh, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think a lot of people suck at loving themselves and they suck at loving their neighbor. And if, you know, if you're not a Christian and you want to leave the first part of that off, you know, you're certainly entitled to do that. I hope you have your reasons. Mm. I'd want to know what they are. Um, but I, as a Christian, like I, I want to, you know, love the Lord, my God, with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Mm. And I want to love my neighbor as myself. And I, you can really peel back the layers of that onion. Like when you start talking about what loving your neighbor like yourself looks like. And I think that's appropriate for atheists, for Muslims, for, uh, new spiritualists, Hmm. you know, for, for Mormons. I mean, love your neighbor as yourself. Some people are horrible at loving their neighbors well, because they only think of themselves. Hmm. And again, you know, just to hearken back to what we were talking about in the team environment, if you're the guy that only loves yourself, everybody in the room knows. I mean, you, you, you can identify that guy mm-hmm. when you're in a team context. And I got, I got news for you. Like if that's you, like you're, <laughs> nobody really wants to be you, mm. you know, mm. like it, 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 it's very unoriginal, you know, to be ridiculously selfish. Mm. Um, so, you know, lo- some people are horrible at loving other people. Um, and then some people are really bad at loving themselves. Uh, some people love their pets more than they love themselves. Hmm. And I think that's equally problematic. Like it's two sides of the same coin. I can't love you well if I don't love myself. Hmm. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say that that would be what I would encourage, um, people that want to lean into meaning and, and, and abundant meaning, uh, in life. Uh, to do love yeah. the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and really love yourself well, and love your neighbor well. Again, so, some people are horrible at loving their neighbors, and some people are really bad at loving themselves. And I think you need to you can. If I don't love myself well, I'm not going to be of much use to you. Yeah. You know, when 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 the plane's going down, like what do they tell the parents to do with the oxygen masks? Yeah, put it on your kid first, or put it on yourself first. Yeah, yourself. Put it on yourself first. Mm-hmm. That's not selfish. You want to save your kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're not going to ha- be able to save your kid if you can't give of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so yeah, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, um, I can tell you just again, bringing this all full circle, right? Where 
Um, I'm very grateful that I didn't leave back in my freshman year, going into my sophomore year, that I got to be coached by you, that uh, um, I got to coach with you, right? And all through those years of, of the mentorship and pouring in when you didn't necessarily even know that you were. Um, and then now just to be able to call you a friend, man, means the world to me. Um, and so thanks for being built for others. Thanks for being built for a lot of people that, um, have a lot of great stories. And again, we can, we won't turn this into a version two of the, of, uh, Scott right now, our love sesh here. But, uh, uh, but I think, I think as we're wrapping up our first episode, cause we're definitely going to have you back on, uh, cause we got a lot more to talk about. And that's the thing is, is there's so much good stuff that we can go through on, on our own stories, right? I mean, this, this stuff is our lives today and what you are, what you do day to day and dealing with and walking through and what I deal with, uh, just from a day to day perspective, but there's specific stories. I know both you and I could point to in our lives and moments of, of our lives where it's, there was so much stuff that was built in us and, uh, and that we can, that, that we can see the beauty that came out of the ashes, if you will, um, that, uh, that we're both very thankful for that always goes back to something that is still very absolute. So, um, I appreciate everybody listening to this and knowing that, uh, that just remember that truth isn't hiding in some dark alley, trying to not be found. It's, it's there. It wants to be found. Um, don't listen to the world that, that wants you to just go chase happiness, you know, um, find your meaning, find your purpose. It's not as, uh, as elusive as that feels sometimes to, to so many of us in those dark valleys that we seem like we go through in life. Um, and, uh, and if we can help you, we want to, we want you to be part of our warrior chain. It's the whole reason live like warriors exists is to get people out of the shadows, off of the bench and into the game and onto the battlefield. Right. Um, it gives all of us an opportunity to go and create change and, and showing that you are able to fill a need that you are, uh, able to find your strengths that you are able to play a role that maybe you didn't know that you could play. And, Oh, guess what? It's not just this need that, you know, some, some monster truck driver found that we're going to go and fill or some, some good that we're going to go and do. Um, it's, it's the neighbor, it's the person across the street. It's your brother that can't fill up their tank with gas, right? It's being able to step into your world with, with more confidence than you, than you had yesterday to create change and to become built for other people. Um, and that's everything that live like warriors is all about. So, uh, if you're not part of our warrior chain, uh, you'll hear, hear me say this till I'm blue in the face. We want you to be part of it. Uh, go to live like warriors.com and, uh, and do that. Throw your email in there. You'll, I'll personally, you'll get my personal email coming through that because I, I want 5,000 people. That's my, that's my vision. I want 5,000 people that are part of this warrior chain and whether it's a financial gift or something like that, it's not, you're not going to get hit up for money all the time or anything like that. It's content like this, like content like this goes to our warrior chain first. Um, it's, it's all of, it's 5,000 people that can come together and say, what could we do as an army? You know? So thank you guys for listening, coach. Thank you for being on our Thanks podcast. For me on, well, you want to come back and do another one sometime? I'll think about it. You'll think about it. Come on. It's your favorite player asking. Well, for 20 years, 20 seasons, your favorite player. I value your friendship. <laughs> and uh, Josh Garrels has a song, Closer Than a Brother. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel that way about you. Yeah. So you're just such a hard person to say no to, Bryce. Yeah. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd <laughs> Amen. love to come on again. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Live Like Warriors podcast. Do us a favor and share this with one person today. You never know who desperately needs to hear this message. And don't forget to join our warrior chain at livelikewarriors.com. We'll see you on the battlefield.